Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for April 2016. I am writer-6th Avatar film, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... I am Xavier Mayer, writer-radical film networker, and with us as our very special guest is... Kate Hardy, actress-writer-actress, no, actress-director-writer-mother-daughter-hyphen... Partner hyphen, quite confused about what I do. And hyphen dog owner. Oh, hyphen dog owner. Yeah. Hyphen dog owner. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, Kate. It's lovely to have you here. Um, so this month saw the release of Black Mountain Poets, the largely improvised comedy from writer-director Jamie Adams, featuring Alice Lowe and Dolly Wells as sisters who pose as uh, famous poets at a Welsh retreat. I, sometimes I get a bit nervous about improvised comedies because they usually, or they often tend to lean on the awkward, like this is an awkward situation, everybody laugh in your uncomfortableness, but this one is actually laugh out loud funny. This is a hilarious film and uh, so well put together, like everyone in it improvises so, so well. I have no idea how much footage they shot to get the gems that they did, but um, this was, uh, this was fantastic. I have always wanted to have a TV show called Poets Win Prizes, where you make poets do stuff instead of pets, like, you know, sponsored sonnet and stuff. And this was that film. It was like the best in show of po improvised poetry competitions in uh, the Welsh mountains. And I, as a poet, I was really nervous because poetry on screen is often like people with fake noses staring off into the distance. Nicole Kidman. <laughs> And I just thought this is gonna. It, this sounds like it's gonna make fun of poetry, and you know I'm gonna have to write letters to the internet about how that's rude. But actually, poetry is a great situation for improvised comedy because writing poetry is a funny thing to do. Poetry itself is a form of improvised comedy or pathos, and the film just really uses that. It puts like performance how we perform ourselves because um alice and dolly play con artists so they're always conning they're always on and that gives them a lot of improv improv to work with like what are our names what are our backstories but then poetry itself and poetry workshops are where people do ridiculous things and they just fully go with the ridiculousness of it and i love that the story really redeems that as well like in the end poetry does let Alice's character say something that mm. she wasn't able to without ever losing the joke and the chaos. I didn't get to see this one. No? I haven't seen this one. Um, but I do love both Alice Lowe and Dolly and her second name has gone out Wells. of my head. Wells. Uh, very much so. I would really look forward to seeing it. Yeah. There's a yeah. great scene in um, Black Mountain Poets, which I always want to call Cold Mountain Poets, <laughs> which brings up the image of Rene Zellweger doing improvised poetry in a terrible or accent. Black Mountain, no, what's the other one? Brokeback Mountain Poets. Or Brokeback Mountain <laughs> Poets, <laughs> which <laughs> would be an amazing film. Um, where Alice Lowe, to sh sort of show the ridiculousness of poetry, reads out a supermarket receipt in poetry, in poetry voice. voice. But the weird thing is it sort of gets you just because she's... Oh, it always does. Poetry so voice is incredible. Yeah, Alice yeah. is incredible. But poetry voice is quite a wild thing. Yeah. But I will definitely watch this film. But I feel like it's a real actor's film. Like, clearing away all of the big budget production, getting a group of people together. It was almost like sort of Bergman-esque. Like, we're going to form this company, go into the mountains, and mainly one camera, you know, they could only a few two-camera scenes, and just focus on the actors. And I feel like... 
this kind of actor cinema is there in Victoria as well. A lot of people have talked about Victoria as being this stunt shot, but the shot is really there mm-hmm. for the actors to yeah, do no, their thing. I totally, I mean, I loved Victoria, but I, for me, like, I hate, not hate, it's too strong a word, I get very intri- uh, irritated by one-shot stuff, like Birdman pissed me off for that. I was like, oh, come on. It just felt like the DOP had his big camera willy out and we were all aware (laughs) of it all the time. Like, you could never forget. You couldn't tune in to Michael Keaton and what he was going through because you were going, ooh, they're still going down the stairs. Ooh, look, they've gone into this room. And I just hated it. Like, yeah, I'm saying hated. I I didn't enjoy it at all. Whereas Victoria... I was I hated the poster. Hate is coming out a lot, but I really didn't like the poster for Victoria, the sort of one girl, one city, one take. And I was just like, why say on the poster how you shot it? Mm. It's but actually, so I was kind of went in in a grump, but I forgot that it was being shot in one take so quickly, which I just thought that's brilliant. I've completely forgotten. And now I feel like for some reason I'm watching performances in a way I just haven't been able to watch for a long time. And in fact, the camera kind of disappeared into the background. I think there's a problem with marketing at the moment with the sort of tangerine. It's shot on a phone. You know, Victoria, it's all in one take that everyone's aware of how things are being shot. And I wish they weren't quite so aware because if I didn't know it was all in one take, Victoria, I don't know if I'd have noticed. I really don't. But I would have gone... God, I have not seen performances like that for a long time. I haven't felt so in tune with a character and what they're going through for a long time. So unlike Birdman, where I never, ever forgot how it was being shot or The Revenant was like, yes, very good. Yes, you're spinning around. Marvellous. Brilliant. (laughs) With Victoria, I'm totally unaware of how it was being shot and and just felt, you know, a friend said to me it was like theatre, but better because it was film <laughs> yeah, it was, you know and there was there was just I just thought it caught performances in the most extraordinary way and and if you, you if you were to sort of break it down then I felt like it was um collaborative it felt afterwards when I remembered it had been made by people and wasn't just on the journey I was like what a collaborative mm-hmm. thing they did it's so exciting what they did mm-hmm. The energy involved to make that film must have been extraordinary, extraordinary and so collaborative because they, they were working like a being. They all of them together doing this thing in the most, which is what film is. But in that, it was just brilliant. I loved it. I really loved it. I always want to get a pen and edit the poster because actually oh. Sebastian Schiffer said in an interview that was their third take. Yeah. So it's actually... One city, one, city one, night. one night, quite, a, quite a few girls, <laughs> yeah. even though it takes a while to get there, third take. And I think that's important that they, you know, it has this documentary quality, but it got that through rehearsing on camera and getting the actors to have that pitch of energy to run through it yeah. three times. And I, I think Tangerine is totally the perfect companion piece not just because they're both like all fetishization of like low budget digital filmmaking but because they that gets out of the way to be so much about the performances and the fact of like small digital cameras means you can be in someone's face without it being intrusive you can get in the middle of a conversation and move between the people who are speaking and move around them and move with them and so the performers 
lead the film and the city shapes the film. So for a long time, and I think we'll come to this in the middle segment, low budget cinema had to be like one room or, you know, only a few setups or shooting on the fly on the street, guerrilla, a lot of talking, great performances, but you couldn't necessarily create the kind of tension or special effects or, you know, the kind of dynamism people associate with certain kinds of genre cinema. But now with like GoPros, drones, small digital cameras, you can do a fucking car chase. Yeah. And it looks just as good and it's just as exhilarating. So I think it's a really exciting direction for for low-budget cinema. But I think he also, the thing he does with Victoria, which, you know, one of my hyphens would be teacher, you know, and whenever I'm teaching students, there's this thing about, and teaching directing, why have you chosen that method of shooting? What does it do to your story? Because if it's just like a weird kind of like, oh, I've got this, you know, very normal story of love, but I'm going to shoot it all in, you know, this incredible way. I'm like, well, that will just overpower your very simple story. So for me, watching directors who are choosing to shoot in a way that enhances the story. And for me, the story is her and this girl who starts off dancing, you know, in a city she doesn't really know and then goes on this journey. And I can't imagine any other style, like if they did, did cutaways in that or they'd been shooting, you know, one person's close up, then another. I think the feeling of being on her journey with her wouldn't have been what it is, which is so extraordinary. So instead of going, oh, I want to make a one... He may well have said, I want to make a one-take film, let's write a good story for it, but it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it makes sense for the story that he's telling rather than him showing off. And and there's something about the honest reactions between the actors that is just brilliant. I mean, you get it in something like Force Majeure, which I love, you know, the these locked-off shots where you can just see the reactions and you know they're from the same take and they're brilliant. Mm. But in this, there was something about just, you know, you, as you pan away to see how someone's reacting to what's been said, you're getting the exact reaction. Mm. And and they was, I just found it so in tune with what it was about and, and, and it made me go on her journey rather than some cinematic showy-offy journey. I didn't feel like I'd been on that at all. I'm going to have to see this film yeah. I, uh, I am fascinated by the by the the whole film but also the poster the fact that it talks about the process in you know, that I one know. take thing it's like yeah. one actress we paid her scale but she has two points on the back end like, <laughs> why, totally. we did the dolby sound we made this, our own you know, food i know yeah totally. it's, it's very strange yeah we should really give a shout out just because i want to say his name to stola brandt Grufflin. Who was Groovlin? Yes. He was the Norwegian cinematographer who does sounds like he is such a, a Groovlin. But yes. what a Groovlin! <laughs> and um, you know, I Schiffer has had a long career. Is that he's started as an actor before he directed? Um, he's the guy who cuts William Defoe's thumb off in The English Patient, which uh, celebrates its twentieth anniversary this week, which makes me feel fucking ancient. <laughs> but he's clearly decided to stop cutting, and uh, you know, except. I have a real theory, I mean, because I am one, but I, you know, Orphans, Peter Mullen's Orphans, one of my favourite films, I love Orphans, and I have a theory about actors who turn to directing, I feel like they have permission to push actors further than directors often do who haven't acted, and there's something about Victoria, you know it's a person who's acted behind that camera as well, because... You know, it's hard for actors when they're being directed by an actor to go, I really can't do this, because they know Mm. that the actor behind the camera is like, well, I would do it, and I have done it. So there's something 
I think you see actor directors pushing actors in extraordinary ways sometimes and you also see actors it's like you've got your stripes you see actors doing stuff for actors directors that they might mm. not do for people who haven't acted and that really excited me you know obviously personally but I just was like it's so brilliant to watch actors with a camera in their hand going come on we can do this and actors going okay I will then mm. and they just I thought the relationship between the actors and him was really exciting like really exciting well, I didn't see this film, and I didn't see it in a double with Our Little Sister, another film. Uh, but I didn't see this one. I'm a huge Coriolanus fan, though. I've I've been a, a fan of his for years, and from Air Doll to Like Father, Like Son, and just you know, he's he's an extraordinary filmmaker. Um, Our Little Sister, how how is it? I just want to. I really enjoyed this month because I think it's the first time we've seen three indie films, or for me on the podcast, all mm. of which are led by women. And there was just something really relaxing about that. Like, oh, okay. Um, I know what's going on here. Um, I have been a creative fan also for years. I loved Afterlife. Nobody knows it's probably my favourite. And one reason I really liked Our Little Sister is it felt like a return to the story of Nobody Knows, which is about a group of siblings, um, sort of teenager and down, whose mum just disappears one day. She just leaves. Um, and Our Little Sister, which is adapted from a, a manga, is about a group of sisters who are now adults, whose father left their mother and then their mother left them. So it feels like it's very much set in the same world. And I started thinking about how all of Koreaida's films seem like they're like Garrus and Keeler episodes from mm. the same small Japanese town. So mm. the father, like the father and son and like father like son the family and still walking the boys in i wish like they're all somewhere in korea adaville having these lives of like quiet desperation mm. and amazing food so the food never stops in this film it never I stops mean... it is a film about comfort eating these this these three girls their dad left and went off with the other woman um who's daughter they then sort of adopt as their little sister which is the title of the film um their mum left and they were raised by their grandmother who's quite strict but also this woman who ran the local cafe who you slowly realize through the film is like their real mum and her she at first you think she's just this incidental character and she becomes like the emotional i didn't realize she was the real mum well, she's not there, not biologically, okay. but like oh, okay, she raised good. them. Oh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, she. I I believe that adoptive parents are real parents. Yes, and, like no, she is the yes. person who really gave them everything. So yes, every time they're okay. eating, they're remembering her and the only form of love that they really got, yes. and they sort of pass that on to their sister Suzu as well. They teach how to make plum wine, and this, this it's a bit like a live action grown up version of Totoro. You're watching it going. Nothing terrible has happened here, even though several people die and lose their businesses. You're like, this is this is lovely. There's a sort of cat bus and some soccer and like a cute teenage relationship. But it's he has this mastery of like everyday life. Mm. Yeah. I loved Afterlife. I really loved Afterlife. So I was really excited to see this. And I think hearing you talk about it, it's interested me in, like you said about the month and how the month has been lovely because you've watched these different indie films led by women. But maybe the, if you see a film that really impacts you, it's dangerous what you see within 24 hours or see within 48 hours. And I'd seen Victoria the night before and was like, Whoa! totally obsessed with Victoria. And then sat and watched yeah. this and was like, 
It's like Ooh. following a Coke binge with a chamomile tea. It really, You're not really going to taste it, are you? <laughs> I really did. Coke binge chamomile tea is totally right. And so I kind of was like waiting for it to kick off all the way through. <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't kick off. But I, after life had something kind of bleaker in it. And this does feel, whilst you're watching it, quite sweet. Like all the time. You know, people are eating and I think they should do the with nail game where you have to drink every time he drinks with this film. Because you would just... I mean, literally the food does not stop. And, and now, it, afterwards, I could kind of look and go, oh, I really get the layers. But at the time I was watching it, I didn't feel the layers very much. And I just kind of felt like it was incredibly sweet. There's quite, and there's quite, I think it's, it's one of those rare films, unlike Victoria with the sort of one film, one night, one take, and going, oh, I wish I didn't know that as I walked in. With this, I kind of think the context of that it is a manga and, you know, his other films and all of that actually really helps because the minute my son told me afterwards, oh, it's from a manga and I was like, oh, that makes total sense. It's got quite, and like the cat boss, I remember us watching that on a loop when my son was really little and it has got that atmosphere of you kind of can't, you you think, is something going to happen at any point? Is anything different going to happen? And it sort of doesn't. But by the end, you realise it was something huge. Mm -hmm. It was something big that you actually watched. So I think I need to watch it again and without Victoria in my head. <laughs> but that really interests me about film, that, you know, people probably more like yourself than me who do watch a film every single night, I'm not sure I can do that because films affect me so much mm. that then watching another one, I can't quite get into the rhythm quick enough. And I think I need to watch this film again. I, I loved the women. They were just... It was brilliant watching them. Um, and, you know, they're all so different. But in a way... They felt kind of too obviously different. I'm the quirky one. I'm the very geeky one. I'm the sexy one. But when I got told it was a cartoon, I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. That's it kind of felt like it was um, like an allegorical tale or something. Do you know, like a fairy tale? Mm. And this was the sexy one. And this yeah. was the quirky one. And, and once I so the context actually helped me more in hindsight to enjoy this film than I did whilst I was watching it. So we have an unofficial rule on the show that the filmmaker of the month needs to have made uh, more than five features. But of course there are a lot of filmmakers who have a finite filmography with five or fewer features. And so we have the mini hyphenate that we occasionally do. And this month we are talking about experimental filmmaker and documentarian Shirley Clark. And Hepcat. I think if she was on Hellers for hyphenates, she would say hyphen. Hepcat, Hep definitely. I want to say that. Yeah. Hey, Hardy, hyphen, Hepcat. Uh, what does it mean? <laughs> you know, she was she was hip. She was, you know, born in New York in the forties. She was in part of that like Jewish immigrant New York scene. But she got to Greenwich Village in the fifties, which is like one of those moments when one place is like the center of the fucking universe. You know, jazz be poetry coming back to Alice and Dolly and she wanted to be a dancer she trained with Martha Graham but apparently she really what she wanted to do was be a choreographer and she thought she realized she can make films that had dance in her first film Dance in the Sun won best dance film of the year mm. and she got discovered by 
the Independent Filmmakers of America, um, which was a group that included people like Jonas Mikus, Stan Brakhage, people who were trying to redefine film, try and really find a jazz way of making film. And she connects with the legend that was Maya Deren. And I have a brilliant story to tell about this. So this is a story that Shirley Clark told Lauren Rabinowitz, which she um, tells in her book Points of Resistance, that Shirley Clark came from a wealthy background. Her dad was a multimillionaire manufacturer. And um, he said he would give her $1,000 to make a film. And Darren said to her, Darren had just founded the first film fund for independent filmmakers, the Creative Film Foundation. And she said, if you give me the thousand dollars, I'll give you a fellowship for eight hundred dollars and we'll have a massive press launch and you'll get in all the papers and I'll take two hundred dollars for the running of the foundation. But you'll it won't be like this embarrassing thing where your dad gave you money. It will be a big story where you get a grant from a distinguished foundation. <laughs> and Shirley Clark was like, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. So they went ahead and did that and um Gregory Bateson who was on the board of the Creative Film Foundation you know gave her this presentation check and that really made her in the New York art world she wasn't someone who'd come from this like embarrassing background that she kind of satirizes in The Connection her first feature film with a documentary maker who's like totally unhip and really struggling he's really uptown she really wanted to be downtown and and down with what was happening Mm. And that's one of the earliest examples of a mockumentary ever. It predates The Clowns, Hard Day's Night, Take the Money and Run, but I think it even bests them all by incorporating the crew into the film. It's so ahead of its time. Um, It was an adaptation of a play, so Mm. the connection... Um, it's set in one room and it's about a group of musicians who don't call themselves musicians, they call themselves junkies and they're waiting for their, well, they're waiting for the man, they're waiting for their dealer and they've allowed a documentary maker to film them. He's there with his cameraman and it's an amazing, just again, act of cinema, it's really about the power exchange as they try and bring the documentary maker into their world, try and tempt him to get high, to turn him on, as the phrase is. And actually, a lot of it is about the control that the camera operator has. He's like always making fun of the director by how he's positioning the shots. And then it is a mockumentary, it is from a play, but then there's these moments of incredible documentary realness when she's filming the musicians performing Mm. and they're just jamming. Mm. And it it sort of springs into life away from its source text. I mean, it's so... It's the process of it. You can tell, without knowing the play, I can tell that she's clearly adapted it to to, to the format. There are obviously a lot of changes made in order to, to make it work as a film. Um, it was also a film that she made uh, to deliberately test censorship rules. Maybe the first film to refer to um, heroin use really openly mm. and without any judgment. And it's just before sort of beat cinema and stuff like Pull My Daisy. It is so visionary. Mm. And then a couple of years later, she made a short film about the poet Robert Frost, which won an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the few women directors ever to do that. But that film is, we haven't seen, because it cost $200 <laughs> for milestone <laughs> films. Um, and part of Clark's history is this constant battle for money. She's making experimental short films, which win awards and screen really widely. But then when she gets into features, you know, this is before... 
Scorsese and that generation of independence. This is the 60s. It's even like, it's like the same time as Cassavetes is trying to work out doing what he's doing. Mm. That aren't like the independent IFP doesn't exist. AFI doesn't exist. Sundance doesn't exist. Like Robert Redford is still a kid. He's not going to like EP uh, Shirley Clark's film. So for her second feature, The Cool World, she goes to Frederick Wiseman documentary maker and he produces it um again it's adapted from a play which was adapted from a novel so the play was adapted by Carl Lee who also plays the main adult role in the film which and actually this film is quite a lot like Victoria it's about a group of young people a gang called the the fiery pythons they're the Mm. I I keep they keep they keep saying like they're the manly pythons, and it kept making me wonder if that was when Monty Python became like, <laughs> the mishearing of the cool world. They're like the amazing pythons. Um, so Carly, who plays the preacher in the film and, and worked with Clark a number of times, adapted the novel, and it's just like, it is jazz. The way they speak, it has this incredible use mm. of like 50s and 60s New York street slang that is woven into a score by the legendary Mal Waldron, who was Billie Holiday's band leader and it was the very first independent film to screen at the Venice Film Festival. And then 1967's Portrait of Jason which is this extraordinary film they took 12 hours of footage just to filming uh filming this guy cut it down to what was it now 40 and it's so captivating. Yeah I loved this film I haven't seen the others I really want to see them I was really uh when I read up about her I loved the fact she was... My mum was a, a jazz singer and my sister's a choreographer, so I was quite interested in that whole thing of, like, jazz and dance going into film, and, and it made me think of the Victoria thing of, like, using the camera as you would a dancer and being, like, someone... And it seems like she was quite interested in how camera is actually interacting with the people in a sort of physical way. And then this film is basically, like very very still just one locked off shot which I was like that's quite amazing but I I loved it I just I mean he's it's real and it's his life and he's telling this tragic story as if it's not tragic the whole time so he's telling you about himself but as if he's kind of on top of it and he finds it funny he's constantly finding it funny but we the audience are thinking this isn't that funny I'm finding this really really painful but she then plays with being judgmental about him because you hear her and I think it's her partner chipping in and asking the guy questions. But actually, I still felt they ask him quite nasty questions, but I still felt like there was something very celebratory about making a film about him. It didn't feel like they were exploiting him, Mm. Um, although you could feel like that, I think. But what's the option? You know, the guy keeps saying he wants to be a... um, he wants to put on his own show, but he's never done it. And he's brilliant about saying, how many times have I asked people for money to put on my show? I've never put it on. And in a way, Shirley Clark is giving him the opportunity to put on this show that he can't get it together to put on. And so even if she's mean to him or exploiting him a bit in making it, it's all overridden by the fact that she's giving him this opportunity to be seen. And it's an opportunity he keeps not being able to give himself, which I really, really loved. And it did make me think of, even though it's, I know Sophie's not a fan, but it did make me think of Lewin Davis, and it sounds like her other stuff has essence of that, of people that are obviously incredibly talented, but something about their personality mm. just means they're going to hit a wall constantly and kind of self-sabotage. It's, it's an essay in self-sabotage, really. But you can see his talent mm. all the time. You think he's funny, he's a raconteur, he's got so much to say, but self-sabotage is running riot through it, so... I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. 
I think she's an amazing filmmaker and also a fascinating example of someone who is constantly wrestling with the ethics of being having access to being a filmmaker because mm. she's middle class. Yes, she's a woman. She was the only woman, pretty much, in um, that avant-garde scene after Deren died. Um, and she knows that she's pretty alone with that. Um, in the 70s, Roger Corman also had to work with him on a film called Crazy Mama, but they had massive creative differences, mainly relating to the fact that he didn't treat women as people. Um, he, and she, he, he didn't know she was an accomplished filmmaker. Like, she said he had no idea who I was. Yeah. And, yeah. He'd come across her through, she was a video artist, one of the first video artists. She had a video performance troupe that used to do sort of happenings, and he heard about these, and um, because they were associated with some of the sort of wilder elements of the LA scene at the time, uh, and you know, called video freaks. He just thought that she was, you know, someone like Divine almost. She was a performer and approached her, but she was very clearly a filmmaker. She carried on making a lot of video work. But in Portrait of Jason and in The Connection, she's wrestling with this fact that as a political radical, she she knows where absolutely where the most important story in America in the 60s is. It's to do with telling the story of civil rights and African-American people in all their complexity. Jason Holiday is gay. He's um, a hustler. He's worked as a hustler. He's worked as a houseboy. He talks about racism. He talks about homophobia. He talks about his sexuality in a way that had never been screened, seen on screen before with mm. a white performer, a black performer, anyone. She wants to be there, but she's constantly, I think, making you aware that it's her behind the camera and she has certain investments and interests and the power, she lets that power struggle play out on screen. And the one um, time she does appear on screen, which is in Agnès Varda's film, I always have to say this the French way, Lens <laughs> Um She plays an independent filmmaker yes. who is documenting the lives of this amazing menage à trois, consisting of the two guys who wrote Hair and Viva from uh, the factory and she's intrusive and she gets it wrong and it's like this absolutely brilliant and she was incredibly self-aware about what she was mm. what she was doing and and so she struggled and she clearly maintained close relationships with the jazz world mm. because her last film was about one of the legends of jazz Ornette Coleman mm. she made a film Ornette made in America about when he was given the freedom of the city of Fort Worth Texas mm. and uh, he recorded uh, he wrote a symphony for the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra to play and she went and um, made this film on video and she'd been in the interim, uh, this was in 85, she'd been experimenting with video and it has some of the most extraordinary video effects you have ever seen. So Ornette was um, very influenced by Buckminster Fuller, the ideas of Buckminster Fuller and other futurists and he was in discussions with NASA to become their first artist in space. Wow. <laughs> Um, which they couldn't make happen. I mean, this is 85, it's two years before the Challenger disaster, let's I be glad. And But she makes it happen. She she shoots this footage of him on a skidoo and she uses video effects to put him flying around the moon with video trails going behind him, which always makes me think of Tim Curry as the worst witch, uh, in The Worst Witch. And it's just the most intensive entry into jazz genius. It sort of gets what she was trying trying to in the connection but really purely it's like she comes back to the beginning of her career and she just she lets him talk she loves listening mm. to people talk and really listening and she yeah. listens to him talk to his son who started playing with um 
with the band when he was nine or ten and she really takes him seriously as an adult and she started making films with her own daughter when her daughter was a teenager they made a short together called butterfly and i think it's just it's like this other world this other model of filmmaking and her film should be better known um they've just come out on dvd um, from the amazing Milestone films in America. They had to crowdfund to uh, get them out there, so do go and support them. All right, so Kate, please tell us whom you have chosen for your Filmmaker of the Month. My Filmmaker of the Month is the director uh, and producer, Antonia Bird. What made you choose her? Uh, I guess it's timely in that um, very, very sadly Antonia died mm -hmm. uh, two years ago and so um, the BFI are doing a retrospective of Antonia's stuff that's coming up in May um, and I've had to do quite a lot of talking to people about it and thinking about it because a documentary has been made about her as well, a feature documentary by Susan Kemp um, produced by um, Mark Cousins and Adam Daughtry and um, I just thought actually... Yeah, I'll, I'll go for Antonia. There's lots of filmmakers I could talk about, but let's talk about Antonia. And I think particularly great to be talking about her before the retrospective because so little of her work is available on DVD. Yes. I had to get my local library to dig out their VHS of Face from Reserve Stock. So I get very moody. I mean, I, 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 this is also someone I worked with a lot. So, you know, as an actress, I worked with Antonia, I think it's six times. Mm. Uh, but someone else I worked with uh, in, was Alan Clark. Um, and I, I acted in, I think, one of Alan's less successful projects. <laughs> the stars of the roller state disco, hello. You know, it's homeless people on, or uh, unemployed people on roller skates. So, um, and it was a BBC play for today, but the BFI have a copy of it and they can put it on DVD. Whereas Priest, which won a prize at Berlin and I think Toronto, uh, they can't find a copy of. So I do go, how come Alan Clark's he was brilliant, but how come his play for today that is pretty weird mm. is was archived, whilst Antonia's Priest, which won enormous international awards, was not. You know, the BFI now can archive everything, but at the time, someone made that choice. I mean, who made that choice? Probably so. the Catholic Church. <laughs> Put a conspiracy theory out there, but we'll, we'll get to Priest in a minute. And Antonia is a really, I think, interesting case of the mini hyphenate hyphenate Im implicit policy because she's someone who worked solidly from the mid 80s until 2013 uh, when she died she worked across television and film she made a number of feature length projects but not all of them were theatrical releases mm. but to keep working and she was working in tv before it was like the cool new thing which everyone does you know she was a real leader of that she made a feature film for hbo um which hbo then freaked out about and we're like we're screening this at 2am and no one's ever allowed to watch it you know just her outfit is is amazing she easily passes the the five you know, feature-length mm. films barrier, but a lot of people don't know about them because they were on TV, they didn't get put on DVD, and the BFI is going to be really, like, your only chance to see them. Yeah, yeah. If you're in London. And your thing about her being ahead of the time, it's like Antonia actually started work at the end of the 70s, I think it is, and she's at the Royal Court, yeah. you know, and she's one of the per first people at the Royal Court commissioning people like Jim Cartwright, who wrote Road. It's actually Antonia who found the script of Road, Bloody which hell. Alan Clark then went on and directed, which became quite famous, but it was a a Antonia... Uh, Jim Cartwright always thanks Antonia because it was her who kept pu putting it under Max Stafford-Clark's nose saying read this, read this, read this so she's at the Royal Court then she's 
directing Soap. She was one of the founding directors on EastEnders, one of the first directors on Casualty. She's always kind of head, ahead of the time. And she also was one of the first and very brilliant people to go, OK, we don't have this anymore so much, but I'm going to... I've been commissioned to make this small one-off hour-long drama for telly on a Sunday night, but I'm going to make it really cinematic and it's going to win prizes in massive international <laughs> film festivals. So she, you know, she took your funding and she made it bigger. Mm. You know, you thought you were funding her to make something small for 9pm on BBC Two. Antonia had her eye on the Toronto Film Festival and she achieved that every time. And safe is really where that starts. Yeah. It's yeah, it was, three. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to look at that now and think that it wasn't a theatrical film. because It's like you and... Aidan Gillen and Robert Carlyle and it feels so like it's a very intimate story but it feels so big yeah uh I don't you know do we do we make one-off uh telly movies like that anymore I don't know we don't make one we occasionally make one one-off telly movies like that but I think that now they all have their eye on prizes and international film festivals which Antonia started you know she was really she was extraordinary like that and and then and it was in her mind a cinematic thing which I don't think it was in David Thompson's even though he's a brilliant producer I think he had no idea that that's what she had her eye on and I think if he had um, and any of these directors now who are who are working in TV with that eye on the prize wouldn't go, right, we're going to direct our budget to the Cardboard Citizens Theatre yeah. Company and cost people who have been living on the streets in a film about people living on the streets with the potential for, I'm sure, possibly a chaotic shoot. It's a very short shoot. I think we fight about this, um, the ones of us who are still alive and fighting, but we, I think, I say, I thought it was 10 days, but I think David said it was two weeks, but it was a very, very short shoot, and the majority of it was at night. Yeah. So it was like two weeks, if it was two weeks of night shoots, Um but the Antonia's thing was always rehearsal process. So there was a slight, she always, which is a very difficult thing to get into a budget these days. I know as a director, um, she, she would, rehearsals was a big thing for Antonia. So she could shoot something in two weeks if she'd rehearse for three. And rehearsals were not rehearsals. <laughs> you know, rehearsals were not, and that scene's going to be like this. They were like, I need this bunch to know each other so well. She didn't care if you were sat around in a school hall chatting and telling stupid jokes, as long as she could stand back and go, Oh, look, my cast are really bonding. And the cardboard citizens uh, actors have really got to know the, you know, out of drama school actors or yeah. me or whatever. And she could guarantee that when she had to shoot in two weeks' time, really, really quickly, those people knew each other intimately. That's what she always spent money creating, that uh, atmosphere with people. So, And I guess coming from a show like Casualty, she wasn't afraid to have a big scene in there as well. So quite early and safe... Um, at the hostel where the, the main characters have been staying and have been kicked out and have gone back to, there's a massive sort of chase fight scene with like naked people <laughs> running around, <laughs> naked Aidan Gillen, and um, lots of young people just swarming around and the camera sort of going downstairs and going like it's it has real pace and drama. And then in, in Face and Ravenous, she uses that to do a couple of really classic shootouts as well. But she was a film buff. Antonia, she was a total film buff, like obsessive film buff. You know, she started in theatre and then found what she loved and it was film. And so she, she would have loved the Victorias and, you know, she would have looked and been like, whoa, look what they're doing, look what they're doing. And 
she 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 wanted set pieces she wanted stuff like that because she loved directing film she really enjoyed it um but she was fearless about it on you know small budgets yeah totally and the the thing about Aiden being uh, naked, I've said this a million times, but Antonia had a boob to bollock rule, <laughs> which was that she, if she was going to ask an actress to be naked, uh, a bloke had to be naked too, and you had to see everything. So Aiden's actually more naked in many ways and safe than I am. You're quite used to seeing a female body, but when Aiden's naked, everyone's like, "Whoa!" <laughs> and now with Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh yes, Amelia Clark, especially popular. <laughs> Yeah, so she, you know, the boys had to be naked. Yeah. She wouldn't ask a, a woman to do something she wasn't going to ask a bloke to do. You know, Lena Headey, one of, who's in Game of Thrones, one of her first roles was in Face yeah. for Antonio yeah, when yeah, really yeah. young yeah. there. Yeah, well, she was obsessed with actors. You know, her father was an actor and she had this very beautiful relationship with actors, incredibly protective, like fearsomely protective. But she also had an eye for actors. You know, she came from the Royal Court. She'd worked in theatre a lot. And she she knew that actors were the people that were going to bring to her what she needed in front of the camera. She you know that she was very very savvy about casting. And you know in a way I know it sounds naive, but a lot of directors I think are not savvy about casting. They think oh, I like his spotlight picture or he was good in that, and they cast someone and they cannot get them to yeah. do what they want. Whereas Antonia knew she had to have people who would do what she wanted, and she she was really bright about casting. And she could get them to flip. So safe, priest, face, ravenous. One, all one name. All one name. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Robert Carlyle. In safe, he's in the deep end, really intense, charismatic, very violent performance. And then in priest, he's one of the most touching, I think, gentle gay characters. Mm. To it's a beautiful performance. Beautiful performance. Oh, so really. 1994, made in Merseyside. Um, written by Jimmy, the great Jimmy McGovern, who also wrote Hillsborough. Um, and, and it's Cracker. And, and Cracker, yeah, which, which Antonio also directed, on. yeah. And it's it's a film about a very tender moment, difficult moment in Liverpool. It's about the role of the Catholic Church in that moment, and it has a gay priest as the main character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think her thing about getting actors to flip is that Antonia saw actors as technicians I think and if she really loved and respected you as an actor she thought you could do anything you know she really would cast you as anything and I think producers would be like really you're going to cast Kate Hardy as like the hard-nosed you know leader of the country and she's like yes I am but she was crying as a homeless person I don't care Kate can do it so she I think it's a brilliant example Bobby's career with her because she she never she didn't she just saw him as a brilliant actor so she was like yeah Bobby will do that he'll do that and um, and I think if a director puts faith in you in that way, then you can do it. You know, you have no problem with what they're asking you to do. Um, but yes, subject-wise, Priest is is an extraordinary film, and I think the combination of her and Jimmy is, you know, Jimmy McGovern. She does something really beautiful with his scripts, and I think they have they share sensibilities. Highly, highly political. You know, very, very. Um, like my Sullivan's Travels thing, very moral about the stories that they're telling. But they also have quite a naughty sense of humour. And I think, you know, Jimmy's got a brilliant sense of humour and he's always kind of punctuating very serious things with something. In- I mean, the gags in Priest come, nearly every scene ends with a silly joke. Mm-hmm. Mainly Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. yeah, but he writes gags nearly all the way through it, Jimmy. And I think Antonia, rather than being like a very serious director who knows she's making a very serious piece that she wants to win a prize at Toronto, which it will, she embraces the gag she's like yeah totally let's go for those so 
the way they work together, I thought was very beautiful. Um, the film still managed to, or still, but riled the Catholic Church quite considerably. Mm. There was a talk about banning it in Ireland. Um, there was certainly a lot of discussions in the UK about what certificate it should get, even though it doesn't depict anything mm. explicit. Um, and then having made Priest, and it wins an audience award at Toronto, it wins a prize at Berlin, she takes a detour. Yes, Mad Love is her going out to the States to make this. It's Strewn Barrymore and Matt... Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell. I was going to say Matt Damon. They say, well, look the same to me. <laughs> uh, those white Hollywood actors. But um, she did want to go to Hollywood. She did want to go and make stuff in Hollywood. But, I, I mean, there are people who love Mad Love. I don't love Mad Love. I think she, you can see in Mad Love, it's a story of a girl who's got mental health issues, who falls in love with this quite straight boy, and it's their kind of journey together. And Antonia's, uh, you can see her trying to put in her stuff, you know. I, I see, and this may be, I hate when people die, we're all telling stories and they're not here to correct us, but I do remember Antonia telling me she'd shown Drew Barrymore the stuff of me dancing in the flat with Aidan and being like, it's this vibe, it's this vibe. And you can feel that she's trying to get these very clean, sparkly 1980s Hollywood actors to do what the naughty ones were doing in London for her. And it doesn't quite ever work. And um, I think it was quite a bruising experience. Um, and she returns from it. She doesn't, she doesn't rush to do that one again. Yeah, she comes back to do uh, Face in 1907. So this is a film made in 97, the year that, or it was released in 97, the year that Labour were elected. And it's just fucking visionary. She sees everything that is going to go wrong with new Labour. There's Socialist Worker Party mm. posters in the background saying, if you don't want to vote Conservative and you can't stand Tony Blair, you know, this, this is, you can vote for us and there's like save our nhs jobs being cut she sees both what's happened to the country under the conservatives but also the failure of the left so robert Carlyle's character his parents were socialists he went on a lot of protests with them and then on the the picket line when the printers went on strike in fleet street his dad gets knocked down by a police officer on a horse yeah. the protests are kettled and his dad gets knocked down and, and presumably killed and so he's abandoned so Socialism and he's taken the sort of cynical free market like he just is new labor it's so like yeah. it's so perceptive it's just full of like brilliant details like that like the posters in his flat are for ken loach's land and freedom which is you know this huge uh story about the spanish civil war and then hidden agenda which is a sort of bit like the night manager a sort of oh crime goes right to the top of the british establishment and then for billy bragg like she's really putting her cards on the table in that character and his journey from like, oh, well, it's fine that I'm a cynical criminal because, you know, at least everyone's staunch. Mm. That's the word to, oh, fuck, they're not. And this mm. is like, this is a few years after Reservoir Dogs and like lock, stock, smoking barrels and the re-glamorisation of sort of macho bonding crime films. And Face just takes it to pieces. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lovely interview with Antonia online where she's really laughing, saying that someone had compared Face to a combination between EastEnders and Tarantino, and she loved it. She was like, that's the best review I've ever had. She's really laughing. And I think there's so many things that you said. I, I think someone should do a montage of the subliminal work of Antonia Bird, because, you know, if Antonia had like a superhero suit on she would have p in a massive letter she is political then she's not going to hide it she's not trying to subvert and kind of say i'm not a political director i can do what you want she she arrived saying i am political and i am 
socialist and, and this is what I'm putting on the table, this is what I'm saying all the, all the time. But she still carried on trying to subliminally put things in there as well. So, you know, someone said to me just recently, you know, the graffiti in the background of Antonia's work used to really frighten her producers because they'd be watching a car and sign it off and say, yes, that's great. And only later realise that she'd put in some massive bit of graffiti, you know, strapping her flag to the mast and saying, this is what I think politically. So it's it's on so many levels and then you look at just the filmmaking element of like Lockstock and stuff like that and go the, you know what's her name who did oh god back Catherine Bigelow always gets brought out as the woman who can direct action and you're like and in face Antonia's got like so many shootouts she has a battering on... ram <laughs> she's got a battering ram she's got like chase sequences she's got shootouts and she's fearless yeah. as there a was, there was one sequence I was the, the big shootout sequence I was like how the hell did she film this like I yeah the shootout on the street. Yeah, it just gets, keeps getting movie. bigger <laughs> and bigger, and you're like, "Where is this going?" Because like, she is... loved film, she yeah. loved it, and you know, we we'll talk about Ravenous in a minute, and that's got a sequence in it that wasn't even in the script that she put in. You know, that she is, she is a a consummate filmmaker, and she is fearless about like, right, the shootout, great, and you know, I, I always identify with this in that Antonia was very dyslexic, and so she didn't love written word stuff she didn't but she saw visually all the time like she could see sequences in her head and just that in itself forget you know it would never forget but you know let alone the fact that politically she's saying extraordinary things she's always looking at Britain really properly politically about what's happening she's not pandering to America by trying to make things that are a bit like they are making she's saying this is Britain and this is what's happening here and she's a filmmaker who knows what to do with her camera in a way that you're like, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's really exciting, that part of her as well. Well, there was another uh, director initially attached to Ravenous, I believe, and it didn't work out. And Robert Carlyle said, I know who should direct this. Yeah. It's sort of a Western, but it's about cannibalism and it's horrific, but it's really funny. And watching this film today, I do not understand why she just wasn't given a truckload of money and begged to make everything in Hollywood. Like, yeah. this film is amazingly put together and, and there's nothing like it. I've not seen anything like it since. Well, The Revenant wants to be ravenous, but with the inverse politics. Like, but with no comedy. I mean, that's no the thing. Ravenous, you... Intentional. Intentional. Ravenous, you, you look at and you laugh. Like, that's yeah. that's that's its, its its strength. That's its, the key to it, I think, is but it's I so have a funny. real thing about, like, I think, you know, the Jimmy McGovern and, you know, she was working at the same time as people like Alan Bleasdale and these were writers, satirists, who knew that they're human experience is awful that's very often to do with politics and capitalism and you know what's happening to poor people whilst rich people are thriving and they're very serious like beyond serious about that but they know that if you haven't got humor in it mm. you're not telling the full story and the and humor is really grown up and Antonia took that into everything she did and so the fact that ravenous is funny and the revenant is like so fucking unfunny I think is the difference between a teenager and a grown-up you yeah. know ravenous is grown up because it's about capitalism as well you know it's looking at like we will all eat ourselves if America goes the way it's going we will all end up eating ourselves but it's laughing all the way through it and that's the writer you know the writer wrote that but Antonia totally embraced it yeah. and it was Milcho Manchevsky who was going to direct it originally and he had done a lot of prep on this film they'd actually shot stuff so when Antonia got out there she had a week's prep 
A week's prep. Wow. And I mean, for anyone who knows anything about filmmaking, that is nothing. Mm. But she and she totally embraced it. And then the thing, I, there's so many stories about Ravenous. I, lo I love, I love her and Bobby's relationship. You know the way those two are working together. But I also the, there's a big fight scene in it when a guy jumps off a cliff and then falls through trees. And in the script, it just said jumps off cliff. <laughs> and they had hardly any money left because they'd already shot stuff. She'd only had a week's prep, and she invented that whole sequence. So she invented, and her partner, Ian, tells a brilliant story about her and his, his guy Pierce, isn't it, who'd done quite a lot of quite soapy telly, that they both like said to each other on set, it's a good job we started in soapy telly because we know how to work with no time and no money. And like running at something and going, yeah, we've got no time, we've got no money, but I'm still doing a massive sequence. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I, I love ravenous and i love the soundtrack it's damon alburn and michael nyman and it's just the most exciting soundtrack and antonia was a collaborator she found people whose work she loved and if i you know i can imagine her you know so excited watching people do their thing so she will have come across damon alburn put him together with michael nyman and been punching the air going <laughs> look what i've made so one of the things I noticed about about Ravenous, again in contrast to The Revenant, is the prominence of the two Native American actors, uh, Joseph Running Fox, who's Pueblo, who plays George, um, and Sheila Towsey, um, who's Menominee Stockbridge Muncie, um, who plays Martha. And in contrast to The Revenant, she is the one survivor. She makes it to the end, she takes a look at the dead white men, and she runs. And what's fascinating to me is that neither of them really had that many. They're both absolutely brilliant in it, in um, two very different roles, uh, playing them very differently. Neither of them worked that much afterwards. And that's something I also really noticed when, when watching Hamburg Cell. I immediately went and looked up Karim Saleh, who plays Ziad, the lead. I was like, this guy is amazing. What else has he done? Oh, he was a Saracen messenger in Kingdom of Heaven and a god in Iron Man 2 and a terrorist in Munich. But this guy is as much star material as Robert Carlyle and he carries what is an incredibly difficult film. So this was the first film made about the events of 9-11. It was made in 2004 and it's about the four, predominantly about the four men who flew the planes that were aimed at the targets on 9-11. And Ziad is the, is the main one. He's not exactly a sympathetic character, but we see his struggle. He's married. He is a person of compassion, but he's also someone who desperately wants to fit in with a group of men. And a lot of Antonia's films are about that, about how men sort of force other men to kind of fit in with them. Yeah. There's been, like a lot of people since she's died, want to talk to me about the fact she didn't work with women a lot. Um, and I, I, my feeling about that, and of course she's not here to say, I think she was brilliant about masculinity. I think it has a lot to do with her father and being a female. And I actually think female directors making more films about men is a good idea because they see it in a very different way. And I think Antonia is definitely that, that she saw you know, men in a way that you don't often see them being portrayed and she did it brilliantly. But I also think one must be very careful about thinking that Antonia was choosing to make films about men. Antonia was a jobbing director a lot of the time who was not being handed things on a plate and she made the best of what she was given a lot of the time. So you also have to think, was she being given stories about women? 
we don't know. You know, we can. Uh, she she's the only person who can really say, "Oh yeah, I turned down all these amazing stories about gangs of women." But <laughs> somehow I doubt it. You know, Those yeah. <laughs> but she does do amazing things with masculinity. She does incredible things with stereotypes, which I think you know, Hamburg Cell is a, a brilliant thing for going. Hang on a minute, and that's Ronan Bennett as well. Yeah, you're who, thinking who this exactly. Um, you're thinking this, but actually you know, let's have a look at it more deeply. And I think HBO were terrified of Hamburg Cell. I mean, he tells a brilliant story in the documentary about HBO basically being like, but you've let the terrorists talk. (laughs) And they're both like, yeah, they're human beings. That's like, they have a reason. We want to look into that reason. And, you know, it's it's a brilliant film. I I don't understand why this film isn't like on TV Mm. every day right now. Yeah, I mean, she's it's this is silly, but if you compare her to someone like Paul Greengrass, who then got given so much power and so much cash, you know, the stuff Antonia was doing was so equal. She made this film, and it didn't go like right okay give her a film version of that to do now make her do it now whereas i it's very clumsy of me to say and but i do believe that if a bloke had directed that film people would have been looking at it and going okay hbo buried that but she's brilliant get her to do the big feature film version of it now Um, but sadly, so often Antonia's films seem to to get buried, not protected, not supported, not um, elevated in the way that they should have been. And they probably would have been if it had been a bloke. I mean, the list of British directors she reminds me of that are male is endless. <laughs> and they've all been given bigger opportunities than yeah. she has. So it sort of feels like... You know, there she is, she's at the cutting edge. And one thing that happens to directors who are at the cutting edge is they never get in the meat of it. So if mm. she'd been sort of five years behind herself, in a sense, she would have been like Jane Campion now, you know, in the, the era of quality television, mm. getting to make something like Top of the Lake. And because after Hamburg Cell, she comes back to Britain and she ends up working on The Village. Mm. I mean, yeah, but you, t- Antonia's other television is stuff you must think about is like Care is a one off drama she made with Steve McIntosh and I think it is is it Tom Wilkinson again it might be that won huge prizes and is a brilliant piece of television she directed series she did you know I did the men's room with her very early on and she did a lot of television and then yes she came back and and she directed a documentary so she directed a documentary about a children's poetry competition which actually won a BAFTA so she was looking at television all the time and I think her experience in America on Mad Love did make her go hang on a minute I'm gonna stay in Britain perhaps I think for now but she was trying to make films all the time she had a company she had four-way pictures and was trying to make feature films and yes she she finished on The Village and I and even though she did a brilliant job on The Village I think she was knackered she was knackered doing that kind of television and wanted to be making stuff where her beliefs and her ideals were something she was not being told to squash all the time. You know, Ken Loach, people don't go, oh, Ken, shut up a minute and come and direct some, you know, call the midwife. You know, <laughs> you know they know he's a political filmmaker. No one's going to make Ken Loach do that. But with Antonia, it's like, is there any chance you could just leave the politics aside and come and be just a mainstream, very, very good television director for her? Yeah. And it's like, why? Why? You can see what she is. That's what she is. That's what she does. Just like Ken Loach. She's the same, you know. But for some reason it was offensive in in her, you know, or frightening, you know. 
So the BFI retrospective has the title "The Women Who Kicked Down Doors." Yeah, I I don't love that title. The women who blew up cinema. No, I have the woman who fucking had a shoulder against the door trying to kick it down yeah. in her entire career because I think, you know, when people die, you give them this thing of like she managed to kick down the doors. It's like, did she? I think she kicked them down and they. Shut them in her face again, and she had to find another battering ram to try. And the woman who tried relentlessly to kick down doors (laughs) might be, you know, an accurate title. It's beautiful to look back and say she did kick down doors, and yes, she did. But let's not forget that she spent a lot of time banging her head against shut doors as well. And on that note, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. If you're in London, you can get to the BFI this month to see some of Antonia's work. If there's any justice, they'll be putting it up on the BFI player as well. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Bye.